I'm sick of taking a scrapbook to him. And I'm sick of a high hat. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Natty, 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 Natty McGee. What's up, Ben? How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. I like that intro. Is that your new theme song? Yeah, I'm I'm trying some things out, you know? We're trying to grow this podcast. We're going to add a lot of gags. We're going to introduce catchphrases. Bazinga! All that Sheldon shit is coming to the podcast. Just kidding, everyone. No, I just I I feel like it's kind of the same every time, so I'm trying to mix it up a little bit. I feel like you can be the constant and I'll be the wild card. How does that sound? What are you saying about me? I'm saying that you're a strong, reliable narrator. Now, are you giving me the hi hat? Hey, I am not giving you the hi hat. I'm being real with you. I'm being real with you. Is that what the hi hat is? Just bullshit. The hi hat. Is disrespect. Disrespect. Okay. It's sarcasm. I it's, see. It's talking above you. Are you giving me the hi-hat? It's like you're giving me the runaround. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. No, it means you're, you're not taking me seriously. Maybe it's a catch-all. We're talking about Miller's Crossing today. The movie <laughs> that the Coen brothers directed in 1990. Their offering to the year 1990, which on this podcast we are living through 1990 we've we've done like 25 or so movies and we're getting close to the end but this is a big one because it's the cobros and (laughs) they're giants do you agree ben yeah absolutely i mean probably in the top three directors we're covering this year in terms of reputation and longevity it's funny though because this is sort of an early offering of theirs this is their this is their third movie so like they're not really the coen brothers as we know them it's pre-fargo pre-lebowski pre-no country this is early coen how do we feel about the coen brothers on this podcast are we pro-co i mean we're like going to the co-church every sunday (laughs) or saturday the synagogue we're it's it's co-night on friday and we're not riding any elevators on saturday we're all in on Cohen. We're all in. So yeah, big Cohen's fan growing up, obviously. When when did you learn about the Cohen brothers? Because you've always, as long as I've known you, you've been a big Cohen brothers fan. You were the one who introduced me to Big Lebowski. For oh instance. wow, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. My f- my good friend introduced me to Big Lebowski when we were probably like fifteen. He was like, "This is an amazing movie," and I, I think it was. I'm not trying to brag here, but I think it was a little bit before like Lebowski became a straight up (laughs) meme. You were into Lebowski before he was cool. Like the day before it was cool. I think, I think like me getting into Lebowski kind of made it cool. No, maybe I I was just young. I don't know. Maybe I had no idea what I was talking about, but Lebowski, I'm pretty sure Lebowski was cool from like the moment it came out. Well, it bombed. It didn't do very well. It was kind of a weirdo movie. It's like a cult classic, right? Like it, it kind of okay. gained a reputation over the years. And you were an early acolyte. You were drinking the cool early for someone born in 1990, I think. But yeah, I I then 
knew Fargo, I knew Oh Brother, and then I think around the time Lady Killers came out, I was really aware of the Coen brothers. I was like, oh, the Coen brothers, like these guys are cool. And like I saw Lady Killers in theaters and by the time No Country came out, it was like over, like top three filmmakers at that point in my life. I had a similar trajectory where we definitely saw Oh Brother in theaters and I kind of didn't get it because I was pretty young. Right? That movie's like 2001? I think it's 2000. 2000? So I'm 10 years old. And like, I was familiar with the Odyssey, but like mostly from like the Wishbone <laughs> computer game that I had. Um, and so like that that movie went way over my head. And I remember we rented the Lady Killers because my parents were big old Tom Hanks fans. And I think I sort of was aware of the fact that like these movies were supposed to be good or like were considered important at the time but both of them were kind of like misfires for me oh brother because i was too young and lady killers because it's bad yeah (laughs) and then sometime between lady killers and the release of no country i discover my cinephilia i see fargo fargo is the first one that like clicks with Mm. me and then no country comes out and same same deal like i'm I'm in well i mean no country came out when we were in senior year of high school so that's a big ass deal for anyone and then it won best picture it was like a validation of sorts of like good movies look this is all a tease for what's coming down the pipe here but there was such a tremendous tug of war between no country and there will be blood and i was like died in the world no country like i wouldn't hear shit (laughs) about it and so that was like a real watershed like fandom moment oh yeah cinephilia fandom for sure but we're talking miller's crossing today which is before all that fargo and lebowski and no country so we're we're going back to to miller's and what is your opinion of miller's crossing 1990 basically since i saw this movie which would have been probably shortly after no country uh i got myself a, a a dvd box set of some of the early Coen Brothers movies that included like Blood Simple and Fargo and Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing. This has been one of, if not my favorite Coen Brothers film. Wow. It was always on the short list. And if I was feeling particularly contrarian the day somebody asked me what my favorite Coen Brothers movie was, this would be number one. Nice. But I was thinking about it today while I was driving home from work that one of the things that's so special about the Coen Brothers is that their work has been so consistent over such a long period of time. And they have touched on the same themes and tones and feels of movies, but with minor variations that you can have two people who love the Coen brothers and have completely different top five Coen brothers films. I think that you've got your top five, top five Coen brothers movies, like the, the Canon top five. That everyone says. Of. Let's let's do it right now. What's your top five? Fargo, Lebowski, No Country, Sirius, and Lewin. What was the third one? No Country. No Country. And I feel like those movies, maybe not Sirius, maybe not Lewin, but the three, Fargo, No Country, and Lebowski are in like 90% of the top fives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get, I, I'm with you on Fargo and No Country. Lebowski wouldn't make my five. So this has been Back to the Movies, and it's been an amazing podcast. I've had a lot of laughs. I've had a lot of fun. This is Nat signing off. I'm just kidding. I don't take it that personally. 
You're not wrong, <laughs> Matt. You're just an asshole. Yeah, okay. That's fine. Whatever, indie kid. Anyway, I mean, this movie in particular just speaks to all my proclivities, which is why it's always been in the, in the top of the sure. top for me. I love the intricate plotting. I love the pointed dialogue. I love the complex characters realized by some of these all-time great performances. I love the visual style. I love the 20s gangster setting, which is so underutilized. I love everything. I love everything about the movie. It really just ticks all the boxes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I could say the same thing about Lebowski. I love those epic, sprawling, L.A., dope, fuel. You like the hangout. hangout. Funny. Yeah. Like, so if, if it ticks the right boxes, then great. You like the porn. Yeah, the whole thing. I love L.A. epics, and Lebowski's like a low-key L.A. epic, so super into it. But I totally get where you're coming from. I will say about this movie. That I sat down to watch it with Grace. I was very excited for her to see it because we had tried to watch it once before and something came up. We couldn't finish it. We stopped like 30 minutes in. I'm like, this movie, I really, really love this movie. She turns to me afterwards and she says, I don't understand why you like this movie. It's just a bunch of glum people having the same conversation over and over again. <laughs> She's not wrong about that. It's very true. <laughs> it is just a bunch of glum people having the same conversation over and over. I Yeah, I can't really disagree, <laughs> but I just love that conversation and that particular pitch of glumness so much. That is totally fine. You know, I've been watching this miniseries that was on Amazon called Too Old to Die Young, and it's another L.A. epic. It's by the guy who did Drive, Nicholas Winding Refn. And it's just really violent sad people being assholes to each other and it's like slow cinema they just like don't say anything for like 30 seconds in between sentences and i'm like man i really like this but i could see people <laughs> hating this yeah i just rolled my eyes and when that's you said okay that. that's totally fine <laughs> everyone has their own thing and if you want to see some fast talking 20s prohibition gangsters pulling rugs out from under each other then that's cool and off each other's heads yeah that's right i've seen this movie once before when i was like going through all the cohen brothers because i've done that i did that in high school and i didn't get it the first time i was just kind of like not following it i probably watched it on my laptop and like was like not giving it the full attention that it needed and i was always kind of like okay second tier so I, I rewatched it. I was pretty excited about it because we've watched so many crime movies th for this Back to the Movies experiment. And I was like, okay, Cohen's crime. This is going to be good. I remember this has a good script. And, like, it is good. It's really good for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's just that it is still second tier to me. And we're going to have a spirited debate about why that is. And I just think that it might lack a little bit of what I love about Coen Brothers movies. And it's a little tough to crack, but I want to save that for later. Sure. You know, for the sake, just to double back on, on tears and all that, for the sake of completeness and cohesion, I should do my top five. Oh yeah, that's right. What are your top five? No country would probably be number one. Most of the time, this would be number two, most of the time, but they could flop. Miller's number two. Number three, Fargo. Number four, Barton Fink. Number four, Barton Fink. Love me some Barton okay. Fink. 
Number five, and you're going to think this is insane, I'm sure, but I fucking love this movie so much. Okay. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, I liked Buster Scruggs a lot. It's a good one. I, it's it's awesome. It's like all the Cohen types of movies in one. You get yeah, all of them. No, I I don't think you're crazy. I thought you were going to say Hail Caesar. I mean, it's it's knocking out Lebowski. It's knocking out Hudsucker Proxy. That's it's knocking fine. out, you know... Serious man, Llewellyn Davis. It is what it is. I I think you're a little bit more into like the genre deconstruction. Oh, I love a genre. Yeah, like, yeah, and that's what they're really good at doing. And you know, uh, all of their movies are genre more or less, except for like Intolerable Cruelty. But even that might be genre. That's like, like yeah, that's comedy. like a like a screwball comedy. Yeah. Um. So, but I see where you're coming from. No worries. Okay. Should we get into the book report yes, corner? book report corner. Let's talk Coens. All right. I think their story is pretty well known. Joel graduates NYU, so you've got the NYU connection like with Scorsese. Uh, Ethan went to Princeton, got a degree in philosophy. So Joel was the filmmaker. When they were growing up, they would make films together where they would like remake movies and TV shows that they had seen as little home movies. Um, and Joel goes on to make that his career... He breaks into the industry, uh, mostly working with his childhood friend, Sam Raimi, who shows up in this movie. And that leads to the brothers getting to make their first film together, which is Blood Simple. Blood Simple is a great little thriller. It was a critical hit. Joel won directing honors at Sundance and at the Independent Spirit Awards for it. And so they use that cachet to make Raising Arizona. That one is a pretty sizable commercial hit for them. And that leads into Miller's Crossing, which is their third film. And I think it's kind of crazy that this is their third film because it is such a huge step up in terms of technique from those first two movies. I, I really love Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, but they are rough around the edges. You can tell that they're still working out their quirks in terms of characterization and dialogue and, and plotting, but also just their like filmmaking technique. For sure. And this movie is so much more accomplished on both of those levels and so much more proficient. It's, it's a huge, huge uh, improvement in that respect. It's funny that that's their background because I'm sort of like almost looking at this movie as though it's like imitating other movies in a way. Like it's clearly super influenced by like those noir movies and gangster movies of like the thirties and forties. And like, it's funny that this is where they go. Raising Arizona is a little bit more of like a weird indie movie, right? Much less a pastiche. Yeah. In Miller's Crossing is it's it's so enraptured with the tropes of gangster cinema and has specific callouts to previous movies like The Godfather and The Third Man. Mm. Um, but both Blood Simple and particularly Raising Arizona are, are sort of more unique to them and their sensibilities. They must have been inspired by certain artists making this one, right? They've always been very film literate in the way that they make their movies. You know, they're, they're pretty reticent to give interviews. There's not a lot of material on them speaking about their own movies. And so there isn't a lot of talk about like the specific things that in, inspired them other than what you can actually see in the text of their movies. Okay. I will say that one thing you, you can be sure about is that they were big fans of hard-boiled detective fiction, particularly the works of Dashiell Hammett, not only because this movie is actually a, 
a loose but still an adaptation of the Hammett novel, The Glass Key, but also because Big Lebowski that comes out later is playing in that same space. That's a little bit more Raymond Chandler, but still another hard-boiled detective novel style movie. So that was clearly a big influence on them. That's funny because I have read some Chandler and I love it. And I've read the Maltese Falcon and I kind of hated it. So maybe that's why I like Lebowski so much. You're more of a Hammett. I'm more of a Chandler. I don't know. I mean, I think as far as novelists go, Chandler is, is the superior writer, but Hammett did have a way of capturing uh, a certain kind of like, uh, a seediness mm, that is true that was so revolutionary because he predates Chandler by basically a generation yeah that is true and he's writing these books about you know the internal machinations of organized crime at a time when that was actually happening let me tell you about the Maltese Falcon it's just a bunch of glum people in rooms having the same conversation over and over again <laughs> it's gray surf our, 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 our finest film critic. I think so. I, that's pithy and <laughs> cuts right to the point. I got to say, I'm, I'm into it. So this movie, when the Coens are setting out to write it, was actually really difficult for them because they're basing it off this novel, but they're changing a lot of it so that they can tell their own story. And the plotting of the movie is so intricate that they start suffering from like terrible writer's block. And during this three-week stint where they could not crack this movie... They write a whole other movie that becomes Barton Fink, their next film, which is about a screenwriter who has writer's block. Classic move. We'll make the movie about making the movie. <laughs> yeah, they made the best movie about making the movie. And it was just writer's block. And it was just them having writer's block, trying to figure out how to tie all the strings of this movie together. Because one of the things that separates this movie from its sources of inspiration, in my opinion, movies like The Big Sleep where the threads don't really tie together, is if you sit down with this one, they really do. Like the plot threads? Yes. Every little piece is well set up and pays off well. You just have to be paying attention. I believe you. <laughs> I want to share a story. You you mentioned that they don't give interviews, and I think they might be two of the most imposing people in the world. I had an opportunity one time to be in the same room with Joel Cohen, and I was young. I was probably like around the same age as like when No Country was coming out. And I walked up to him and I was like, excuse me, sir. I just want to say you're an inspiration. And he was just like, thanks. Like, he like did not give a fuck <laughs> what I had to say. And I still cringe at night and can't sleep because of it. Uh, so there you go. Look, that's better than the time that I went up to purportedly criminal director Brian Singer and could not get my words out straight because I was so starstruck by him regrets that's gonna come back later in this episode but yeah i got serious regrets about that never approach a filmmaker to talk to them you know who was the best filmmaker i've ever talked to who ed zwick edward zwick the director of glory and the last samurai i saw one of his movies at the newport beach film festival and i went up to him afterwards on the pretense that i was going to write about it for some web publication and he talked to me for like 10 minutes. He had heard of Chapman. He had an assistant who went there. He was so personable and so friendly. And I'm like, I get it now. You know, a lot of your movies are mediocre, but I want you to keep making movies because I want to work with you. There you go. Barry Sonnenfeld is back to shoot this movie. He shot Misery also this year. Nice. Busy year. And he's a, he's, he's shortly going to be transitioning into being a director 
And because of that, I think this is his best looking film as a DP. This film looks so fucking good. The colors and the way they're shot, the way he shoots the forest, it's the best looking forest of all time. (laughs) Where is it supposed to be? It's like Kansas City or something. It's like just some random Midwestern city. So it's definitely never stated, but uh, you can sort of guess that it's New York. No. They talk about a few New York things. Yeah, they talk about like going to the Palisades. They talk about leaving to go to Niagara. The forest is not New York at all. It could be like Jersey or upstate New York. I got a real like Midwest vibe. It was shot in New Orleans. Oh, okay. Almost entirely. Interesting. I guess it's supposed to be kind of vague. I also think that we just associate that period of time with Chicago so much that that yeah. also like emphasizes the Midwest thing. Plus, of course, the Coens are from uh, Minnesota. They are. And have a, a big Midwest sensibility to their films. Oh, yeah. That's how I knew it's not New York because um, his mansion, there's nowhere in New York that looks like that. That that long street, that's like straight out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, right. So I guess it's just supposed to be kind of rando. But yeah, it looks it looks great. I think in terms of Cohen movies, there's better ones, but you know, they got the Deeks. Yeah, they 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 replace Sonnefeld with Roger Deakins, which is, you know, a pretty good a pretty good exchange. But I I don't know if I agree. I think this this is this is on again on the shortlist for one of their best looking films. A lot of that also comes down to the production design too, which is impeccable on this film. For sure, for sure. Again, I don't put it in the top five for any of those things, but I respect your opinion, sir. Fun fact about Barry Sonnenfeld, he got married at the rap party for this movie. Oh, nice. And to this day, he recalls this as his favorite collaboration with the Coens. I wonder why. Mm, Interesting. Let's talk about other, maybe something else that'll wind up in a top five. Carter Burwell and his score for this movie. Nat, I love this fucking score so much. We get it. You like this movie a lot. (laughs) Get over it. I don't just like this movie. I like each individual component of this movie in isolation of the rest of it. You sound like me on the Goodfellas episode, for Christ's sake. (laughs) No, it's a good score. I prefer the Fargo score. I know this is your favorite Burwell score, but I just love that, that pathetic plotting Fargo that makes William H. Macy look like such a POS. So he has been a collaborator of the Coens for a long time, done a lot of tremendous work for them. Uh, One of his favorite things to do that he does first in this movie and then does again in Fargo is he takes a piece of folk music that's culturally relevant and then adapts it and expands it into the full score uses it as like the main motif so that oboe piece that sort of haunting sad oboe piece that plays over this entire movie is uh, a an irish folk tune called limerick's lamentation Mm, that's cool uh supposedly it was gabriel byrne who suggested they use it for the film nice and it's great and then the one in fargo is a norwegian folk song called the lost sheep cool we're getting real deep into the book report this time yeah seriously talking about folk songs let's talk about one other person who is a notable inclusion in this movie because he normally would not appear. And that is Michael Miller. Michael Miller edited this movie. It is one of only three films the Coens have made that they did not edit themselves. Yeah, they, they edit under a pseudonym. Roderick Janes. Baller move. So it's baller. It's kind of crazy that more filmmakers don't edit their own stuff. It's really a rarity. Maybe it's because there's two of them. They can handle it. 
I think that's part of it. Um, and they always talk about how, like, they, because they have so much control over their own films, they can take the time between when they shoot and when they edit to get a little perspective. They talk about always taking a few weeks after they wrap photography before they go into the editing room. Very important. And I, on like a big Hollywood picture, you couldn't do that. Too much money. And I think what happens on films like this is that they're already working on Barton Fink. You know, they had the screenplay ready to go, so they don't have time to do that on this uh, film. Ah, okay. And that's why Michael Miller gets brought on. He's worth mentioning, too, because he's the namesake of the film. In the uh, uh, original drafts, the, the working title was The Big Head, because that was the Cohen's nickname for Tom. So what, Miller came in and was like, that's a terrible title? Well, that was never going to be the title, but when they're looking for a title and they found Michael Miller to edit the film, they're like, we're going to call it Miller's Crossing. Oh, okay. Interesting. So they named Miller's Crossing in the script after Miller, the editor? Yeah, supposedly. Okay, cool. Look, a lot of this stuff is half-assed internet research, so... Um, interesting. So, <laughs> let's, let's get into the plot of the movie. You should take this one because... You seem very well-versed in this film. Okay. So, I mean, tracking the plot of this film is quite complicated because it's dense and a lot of information is revealed through dialogue or subtext. It begins with two crime bosses. We've got uh, uh, the Italian boss, Casper, and the Irish boss, Leo, uh, meeting because Casper wants to kill a bookie uh, named Bernie. And he is giving Leo a heads up because Leo is dating the bookie's sister. So we get this great opening scene that is sort of an homage to the Godfather. I mean, like John Polito, who plays Casper, looks so much like the guy who comes into Don Corleone's study at the beginning of the Godfather. And it's him talking to Leo and, and explaining why he needs to kill Bernie. It's about ethics. Yeah, and it's obviously like amazing writing. And really good performances from the get-go. Sort of like a lot of movies have to open with like some crazy set piece. And like this is the movie's crazy set piece. It's like there's going to be this type of writing and these actors and it's going to be fucking awesome. Crazy dialogue exchanges. But in this scene, we meet, you know, four of our primary characters. There's really only two other characters who are really important who aren't in this scene. So we've got Gabriel Byrne as our hero, Tom Reagan. Yes. I have been a huge Gabriel Byrne fan for a long time, mostly because of Usual Suspects, which I was a big fan of um, in high school. Uh, I think he's he's just worth mentioning also because he had two religious thrillers in 1999, End of Days and Stigmata. And if we ever do a 1999 season, which seems like a definite possibility to me, we're definitely going to have to do a doubleheader of those because they're both awful and... It's one of my favorite subgenres, but he was—he's a really interesting actor. He was—he was surprisingly high profile in 1990, despite the fact that he basically had never had a commercial or critical success as an actor. The only exception to that was like Excalibur, which is the very beginning of his career, early in the 80s, and in that he plays a very small role. He's Uther Pendragon, which means that he's out of the movie before it even really starts. Mm. He was also in The Keep in the 80s, which is a, an early Michael Mann film and a favorite of mine, uh, although it's a very flawed film. Well, I always loved him in In Treatment. It came out same time as No Country. It was on HBO, and it was great because there was an episode every single night, and I was in a psychology class in high school, and we would waste like 
15 minutes a day talking about fucking in treatment. Perfect way to waste time. <laughs> so thank you, Gabriel. He's such an interesting actor. I mean, he's like the prototypical brooding Irishman. He has always been an actor I loved, and I always thought he was kind of a bigger deal than he was, but he really never had any tremendous success. And I'm not exactly sure why that was. Like, this is one of his, his most well-regarded leading roles. I and mean, he's great in the movie. He's so good. You know, I will say this. I sort of hated him a little bit in this movie. Not as an actor, but I feel like the secret to why he hasn't had those bigger roles is, like, he is a fucking brainiac. And, like, you kind of do know that he's got a lot brewing under the surface. Like, he he's not the leading man that you really root for. I'm not rooting for him in this movie. I was, like sort of hoping he got it at the end of this movie tom's a real son of a bitch and and burn plays him with like absolutely no sympathy he doesn't really have any charm he's just kind of an asshole to everyone he meets and i don't know maybe this was like a a nail in the coffin a little bit because you don't really like this guy at all in this movie but it's one of the many many things i admire about this film is how rich and complex the characters are and tom is is the primo example his psychology is so dense and 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 requires so much work to unpack you know it's it's never exactly clear why it is he does what he does and there's plenty of competing uh, um theories presented to you as an audience for what motivates his character and i think a lot of it comes down to burn who gives him a a consistency that means the character never feels false but also maintains the mystery. Yeah, that's sort of the crux of like why I think this might be second tier Cohen. So again, I kind of want to save it for the end after we've gone through the whole plot. But I do want to mention why is his name Tom Reagan? Because he's literally Tom Hagen's character in Godfather. <laughs> he's a consigliere. And he's Irish. So I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? What is this? Anyway. <laughs> it does feel deliberate. Yeah, it's too close to not be. So I don't know what the story is there, but... Well, Tom Hagen was always my favorite character in The Godfather, so I like him getting a whole movie to himself. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, he this Tom Hagen's a little bit more of a piece of shit, but... <laughs> well, I mean, the other one does cut off a horse's head and put it in the bed of a movie mogul, so like... Yeah, but that guy had it coming. Let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, because he wouldn't cast that singer in his movie. What a jerk. Tom Hagen never went against the family. He was always straight up, right? He never fucked around. This guy, though, I don't trust him for shit. Jesus. He's fucking the boss's wife. Imagine if Tom was fucking Mama Corleone. (laughs) One, but not married. (laughs) That's true. Two, maybe he loves her. That is true. He does seem to love her. Bad flaw if you're a big gangster lord, you yeah. know? Yeah. He's, he's, he's a guy caught in an impossible situation. Or is he just an asshole? Again, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Let's talk about Albert Finney as Leo. Yes. Leo's badass. Leo's the Irish crime boss. One of the best gangsters I've seen in a movie. He really <laughs> embodies the role. Because so many people are pretending to be gangsters in movies. So many people you know. That guy's not a gangster at all. What is this? But he is a real deal gang star. I mean, it helps that he gets that incredible sequence that we're going to talk about very shortly. But even that opening, even that opening, he's good. He's just got this face. He's got this, 
you know, he played a lot of like working class heroes in British TV and cinema. And he does have this sort of like salt of the earth energy. It's weird how he can he can switch between being kind of charming and then being totally tough and like or do them simultaneously. Like, it's really cool what he's doing. What's crazy is that Finney was a last minute replacement. The role was written for and cast as Trey Wilson, who played the the furniture magnate in Raising Arizona. Oh, okay. So he came in clutch. Uh, but he dies uh, just a few days before shooting, and they have to bring in, in, in a new actor, and so Finney does it instead. He's also at a really interesting point in his career. Uh, he had sort of hit a peak in the middle of the 80s. He has back-to-back Best Actor nominations in 83 and 84 for a movie called The Dresser and then a movie called Under the Volcano, which is another Ben favorite. But then he kind of steps away. He only makes one other movie in the 80s, um, it's an Alan J. Pakula film. Pakula is just like he's hovering around the outskirts of this podcast. Yeah, we talk about him a lot. Called Orphans, which uh, was reasonably well received, but not a huge hit. And then it isn't until 1990 with Miller's Crossing that he comes back. And then he sort of enters this new phase of his career where he's kind of playing the old man. And he does that again in Aaron Brockovich and Traffic and Big Fish and Stay Tuned, Born All Ultimatum. And before the devil knows you're dead. That's a clue, guys. Just keep that note. Stay tuned for those movies. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. R.I.P. He died last year. All right, two more people to talk about. The other side of the table. Casper, played by John Polito. The Seamus. Brother Seamus. That's all I think of. <laughs> Him and Lebowski. He is my MVP in this movie. Casper's character is walking this line uh, um, that this movie exists on between like heightened and real. It's, it's almost like this, like gauzy, like, like fairy tale where, or you're not quite sure whether or not you're supposed to take things seriously. And Casper is exactly that, where he is both comical to the point that like Grace turned to me and said, is this just Frank from always sunny in Philadelphia? <laughs> when he's like sweating and his face is all contorted but then he's also terrifying when he needs to be. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't as terrified as, of him. He kind of seemed like a joke to me the whole movie. You're telling me when he beats the Dane to death with his fire shovel and he's got blood all over his face and he's like, always put one in the brain. I mean, yeah, that's pretty, pretty insanely silly, to be honest. But no, the Dane was scaring me in that scene and Finney scared me. But yeah, Polito, I was always kind of like, this guy's going down. He's so full of, he's so full of air. He's really good. And you know, he is, he does ultimately go down, but he's, he's all bluster. Leo is the guy. You can see why he became uh, like a Cohen regular because he just, he does that, that tonal dance so well, which is something the Coens are always playing around in. He, he didn't have a lot of big credits before this movie. I think I was looking at, you know, he'd been in a lot of movies and TV shows, mostly in like crime and gangster stuff, but none of them were particularly big. The biggest was probably this Michael Mann TV show called uh, Crime Story mm. that came out a few years before, uh, which is notable because it also helped solidify the acting career of Dennis Farina and launch the acting career of Stephen Lang. And it's another Michael Mann connection to the cast of this movie, which I just love the idea that like, the Coens are sniping Michael Mann's actors. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. RIP to John Polito. He also passed away in 2016. A lot of dead people in this movie. That's really yeah, sad. He was only 50, 65 years old. He was uh, 
thought to be too young to to play Casper when they were casting the movie. And the Coens wanted him to read for the Dane, oh. who I think was a very different character at that point. But he insisted on reading for Casper, and so they had him cold read every Casper scene in the script at his audition. Interesting. And uh, he nailed it. They really casted this one on the fly, huh? Yeah. Okay, we've mentioned him a few times, but let's talk about the Dane himself, J.E. Freeman. This guy was awesome. I didn't know who the hell he was, and I was like, "This that guy is scary. That's a true ice-cold killer. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the lowest-profile actor of, like, the main cast, by far. Uh, the only thing I know him from is uh, he plays sort of a... Um, a supporting character in Patriot Games, the Jack Ryan film, where he's like one of the helpful professionals that helps Jack Ryan, which is always, you know, there's always a few of those characters in each of the movies. He's he's really solid in that film, but a completely different character, like soft and gentle. Yeah, he's he's got a pretty menacing glare and also menacing headshot when he kills that one henchman. That gun is so big. When he shoots, he shoots a guy in the face after the guy's begging him, and he's he's fucking scary. Really good stuff. Well, the role was originally supposed to go to Peter Stormare, oh, another Cohen regular. I'm kind of glad it didn't go to Stormare because, like, I don't know. I feel like Stormare is really good, but he's kind of goofy sometimes, like kind of lumbering around. And this guy was very sharp. I, I felt like. His sharpness was kind of what made him so scary. I know. I wish he had played more villains, like more heavies. He would have been great in like, I don't know, like a James Bond movie or yeah, something like that. Totally. He's, he's, he's really scary in this. Yeah. And as a follow up to Paris is burning, I wanted to mention that this is f- sort of finally a gay character in a feature from 1990 that isn't a stereotype or a victim. He's a badass who kills people. And who has sex with men. So, fuck yeah, Coens. Thank you. Finally. I mean, it's 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 sort of implied. It's 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 insinuated, but it's never overtly stated. I mean, they say that he lies, he lies with the day or with uh, Buscemi, right? Tom implies as much when he's trying to sort of discredit him. But I think that you can absolutely read him that way. For sure. Also, the actor was gay and he's also dead. So another dead person in this movie. So R.I.P. J.E. What a this is like a cursed movie. Burn better watch out. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that we're having this. Are, is the cast alive or dead? Talk. I'm just saying this movie. You know, it's weird. 1990 is an interesting amount of time. It's 30 years, so it's sort of like that question of like, are the people that were 30-ish, 40-ish making this movie still alive? And a lot of these people did not make it, unfortunately. But all really good actors. All really good actors doing a great scene. There's this thing about this movie where every time a character speaks, it feels dangerous. It feels like if they say the wrong thing to the wrong person, it could get them or somebody else killed. Yeah, totally. And every word has to be carefully chosen. And it, it starts in this very first scene with these two crime bosses facing off against each other and trying to size up how big they are relative to each other. How much sway, how much push they have. Yeah, there's a lot of ball swinging in this one. A lot of, like, I'm pushing buttons here. And ultimately, it ends at an impasse. Casper wants to kill Bernie. Leo tells him no, and Casper says, I'm going to do it anyway. Fuck you. And then it's on. 
The movie then introduces our sort of second plot thread, which is Verna. Verna, Bernie's sister, dating Leo, also sleeping with Tom. The two of them have this really hateful relationship. They're both so closed off and manipulative and uh, 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 by, you know, just sort of the nature of the world that they exist in. So untrusting that they they sort of are perfect for each other, but they also despise that fact in each other. And we get these incredible scenes of the two of them. Yeah, you know, Verna is not quite Cleopatra. I really didn't understand why we're going this far for fucking Verna, to be honest. Like... Well, she's got some great zingers. Yeah, but, like, you're going to start a gang war over her? Come on. Let's, let's not go this far for Verna. You're going to betray your oldest friend in the world for her? Well, yeah. Like, all this shit. That's yeah, what Tom, Tom does, does, too. And then Leo goes to the mattresses for her. I'm like the cops in this movie. They're just like, what are you guys doing? You're fucking nuts. I don't know. I got a crush on Marsha Gay Harden in this film. Like, she's such a ball buster. Oh, man. She doesn't take any shit. It's the last thing I need after a long day of running rum and killing people with Tommy guns is her giving me a bunch of shit. Maybe not worth a gang war. So this was her first major film role. Okay. And uh, she's, again, another great performance. Like, playing a really prickly character and, and giving her a real sense of, like, necessity. She isn't uh, a shrewish just to be shrewish. It is a survival instinct in this, you know, violent, male-dominated world. She's playing the angles the same as they are, and she's doing it in her own way. And, and she will only toe the line as much as is necessary. Mm. Yeah, she is super tough, for sure. I just love this whole, like, two-scene sequence where we see Verna and Tom interact, and there seems to be almost like a real, like, hateful, but, like, sexually charged hateful energy between the two of them. And then Leo shows up at Tom's place, and it's revealed that Tom is sleeping with Verna, and Leo doesn't know. Leo and Tom have a conversation about how Verna's missing while she's asleep in the other room. It's just great shit. Yeah. And uh, these two storylines intersect because the bodyguard that Leo assigned to watch Verna, a guy named Rug, is killed. And this is the spark that ignites the gang war. Right. And that's a great little scene where the little boy finds his body. And then takes his toupee. the dog is like smiling. I love that. And uh, I love Finney when he's like, they took his hair. Jesus, Tom. Why they do that? We get some scenes inside Leo's club where we get a, a little cameo from Steve Buscemi in his first Cohen film. Yeah, Buscemi. Kind of like really quick scene. I guess he, he was kind of on the up and ups at this moment in his career. Like he's going to do Reservoir Dogs next year. So I'm sure he was like a total that guy at this point. Yeah, just like just starting to, to find roles. I mean, he's so unique and it, it's he's so well deployed in this movie because his character Mink is really important to all the plotting that's going on, but we'll literally never see him again. So we have to remember who Mink is and casting Buscemi is like the best way to do that. Yeah, this is where the movie loses me a little bit. Why don't we just get one more scene with Mink? Like just to solidify Mink. What? Why not? Just one more scene with him and the Dane or him and Bernie or him and anyone. Because he's so big in this movie. But then it's like, why do we only see him one time? 
I think, I mean, a lot of this is, is like the Coens testing themselves because, you know, for instance, we have this character Lazar, who is this bookie that uh, Tom owes money to, who we literally never see. You know, they're just, they're sort of seeing what they can get away with. Yeah. Didn't pass my litmus test. I, I needed like one more mink scene just because like when, he, when he's revealed to be dead, I sort of didn't care that he died. Like I, I needed one more scene just to like solidify the mink. Lazar is different because he's just a, his only plot function is that fucking Gabriel Byrne owes money to owe people all over town. Like I get that. And it's kind of cool that we never see Lazar. It's like he doesn't even have time for this shit. I don't know that even if we had had another scene with Mink, you would feel anything about his death because his death is sort of purposely designed to not invoke an emotional response because we discover his body, but only find out who it is many scenes later. For someone who's so integral to the plot of the movie, like, and it's also Buscemi, I'm like, kind of like, give me more of that. I just, just give me one more. You scene. want a little bit? I just want a little more. Yeah. And obviously they took that to heart when they made freaking Fargo. That movie's all Buscemi. So <laughs> I don't know. Just saying. So we've got these, these escalating tensions, this conflict over this bookie who we haven't met yet. This uh, enigmatic brother of Verna. And it threatens to boil over. Rug is killed. Uh, Casper has his club raided. Uh, there's a great scene where he tries to sort of buy off Tom, and we've got this, and we get this amazing scene where he, where he has his muscle try and, and and beat Tom into submission. And Tom hits him with the chair, and uh, the guy's like, "Jesus, yeah, he's Tom!" So sad, so disappointed. There's this great like through line where all these sort of middle level guys all really respect each other and don't really have any personal beef against each other. Yeah, it's true. Like. That guy and all the cops are just kind of like, what's up, my man? Like, it's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. This is just business. I'm doing what the boss yeah, says. I, uh, that was hilarious. It, it kind of makes you think a little bit about, like, what Prohibition must have been like. I think, like, everyone was just like, this is such a fucking joke. What are we even doing right now? <laughs> Everyone's drunk. And it's illegal. it's like weed now. Like, everyone is fucking smoking weed. And, like... It's just such a joke, but it's so funny because like I feel like drinking is always gonna be like even more of an institution than like harder drugs like you know weed or whatever because sure. like you have bars, you have drinking with your dinner, so it must have been so funny in Prohibition. Like everyone's just like, "Hey, Larry, how you doing? <laughs> oh, another case of rum. Great, bring it on in. Okay, whatever." The way that this movie depicts like the political situation, the prohibition, where there's just the mayor and the chief in Leo's office just being like, oh, hey, Tom, what's up? It's good to see you. I really want to now see like a full on political movie from the Coens. I feel like that would be great. Tammany Hall or anything like uh politics now i'd watch any of it they've dipped their toes in a few times uh they wrote the screenplay to bridge of spies which has a lot of sort of like political maneuvering in it too not like corruption so yeah i just want to see a movie where it's like more of this corruption shit it's so funny to me (laughs) the the so the escalating tensions between the two gangs culminate in this incredible sequence where casper puts a hit out on leo yeah and set to the the song Danny Boy being sung by one of the Irish tenors, uh, we see 
the hitmen try and kill Leo, light his house on fire, and Leo get the upper hand and put them both in the ground along with their getaway car. Yeah. It's incredible. I It is on the short list for me of the greatest sequences the Coens have ever put to film. Because I think on the whole, the Coens make very cohesive films um, that, that, that work as a piece, but they don't necessarily always have like a standout sequence in them. And there's a few exceptions to that, and this is one of them. Other ones would be like the coin toss in No Country for Old Men, or like the recording of Man of Constant Sorrow in Oh Brother. Uh, yeah, I feel like they have a lot of standout moments. I love the hula hoop and Hudsucker. That whole thing is awesome. I love it when they go on those tangents. The um, the dentist in Serious Man. And even like in Fargo, there's that scene where Marge just confronts William H. Macy, and it's like one of the best scenes I've ever... I watched that monthly. That's a great scene, but not like... But it's not like the, the Marge discovering William H. Macy is like a huge sequence. It's just one scene. Basically, all of No Country is just one string of standout sequences that's got that's got a couple of good ones but i mean like the standout is the is the old man in the gas station like that is that was like the whole trailer for the movie but that's that also scene, just a that scene. scene that's the so same thing flawless. as the william h macy and you're right. scene you're right so you're right you you're right about? you're right you're right you're right i don't know <laughs> what the, i'm talking about how good this sequence is yeah for sure it's an amazing sequence this is the one that i remembered from watching the movie like i definitely like gave my full attention to this scene when i was watching it at like 16 years old because it's so fucking awesome the recording of Danny Boy was done specifically for the movie and like timed out so that it matches the tempo of the scene and like certain key moments. And just like the 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 marriage of music and visual is so good in this movie. And Leo is just Chadley. He just owns it. And you really I love the line afterwards where they're like, he's still an artist with a Tommy gun. Like, hell yeah he is the old man's an artist yeah, with the time he so good. that whole scene that he has that tom has with like the, the the war boss about like what their numbers were where he's like what's the score four to oh, one. Oh yeah that guy was a random character he just kind of showed up here and there that old that's the gray-haired guy right yeah yeah he's just like another lieutenant in leo's gang um an actor his name is um last name's flaherty i don't remember the first name um, but he's been around. He's done a few roles. Speaking of the gang war, I think, do you ever watch the show Fargo, the Coen brothers? It's basically just Coen brothers, the TV show. Yeah. I've never had a chance to check it out. Cause it's on FX. And I, I feel like FX. the new season that's coming out. It's, it looks like it's very Miller's crossing influenced. It's like two warring gangs oh. in, in like the fifties. So I'm pretty excited to check that out. I've never watched the show either, but I kind of want to in quarantine. Because it's just more Coen brothers. So what we see in the, the sequences following here is that even though uh, Leo escaped with his life and, and, and put four in the ground for one of his guys, the tide is beginning to turn. Leo doesn't have the sway he had. Casper's bigger than he looked. He gets the mayor and the chief on his side. Now the cops are raiding the Irish instead of the Italians. Yeah, there's the scene where they go to Casper's office and the two the mayor and the chief are like sitting in the exact same position as they were at Leo's office. That's great. Great moment. The sequence sort of kicks off with, with Tom so desperate to get Leo to, to fix things that he reveals that he has had an affair with Verna. 
to theoretically try and, and, and put Leo right, to get Leo to give up Bernie um, and to stop listening to Verna. And instead, he gets his ass kicked by Leo and he winds up getting switched to the other side. I love this scene just for where it took the story because like, you're sort of expecting that to not be a thing until the very end. Right, it feels like an end of the second act twist. Yeah, but it's kind of cool. It's like just about halfway through and he's like, dude, I'm fucking her. And it just changes everything and it, it keeps it really fresh. Also, talking about Finney, the way his reaction to when Tom says it, his like little like, oh, and he stands and like, it's fucking yeah, brilliant. It's pretty awesome. But yeah, again, we'll get to it at the very end. It's like, what is Tom fucking thinking in this movie? Does he love Leo? Does he love Verna? Who's what is his deal? We're going to get there. It's a it's a great question because like you could read it what as 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 either way like he tells Leo about the affair after Leo tells him that he's going to ask Verna to marry. Yeah, so it's like is he saying it to protect Leo? Is he saying it to protect to keep Verna? Like is he saying it cuz he's just nihilistic? I don't know. I do not know. And you could really read it either way or both ways. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Totally. But yeah, we'll, we'll get there at the very end. During these series of scenes, we, we finally meet our last major character, Bernie himself, played by John Turturro in one of his all-time best performances. Yeah, right behind the Jesus, for sure. He's just having a great 1990. He's already popped up in two other movies. I, I'm guessing it's just like it's all on the back of Do the Right Thing, which was such a tremendous, you know, uh, standout performance in, in, in that oh, film. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, supposedly, he based this character off of Barry Sonnenfeld, the DP, which I think is really funny because Bernie is so hateful. Yeah, he's really terrible. I would not, I wouldn't say that publicly. That's <laughs> oh, someone I worked with. His introductory shot with him all hunched over in the chair and that grin on his face is so good. It like tells you everything about the character in one shot. Yeah. There is a conversation to be had about like, remember what we talked about in um, Mo Better Blues, <laughs> the Jewish stereotype? <laughs> Are we treading into that water once again, John Turturro? Obviously not as ridiculous as uh, Spike Lee did it, but yeah. it's a little there. It's a little there. It doesn't help that everyone's calling him pejoratives. Shmata. Shmata. Yeah. Uh, and it also doesn't help that he betrays the fuck out of Gabriel Byrne. Uh, but, you know, state your case, Ben. I think that Bernie is a fully realized enough character that, like, his ethnicity doesn't really come into play. Okay. He is doing the same thing everyone else is doing in his own way. Um, and, and we understand Bernie in a way that we don't understand the club yeah. owners. In what were they Mobile called? Blues. It was like... The something brothers, yeah, I don't remember. The, the Shylock brothers. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, he's great and conniving and obviously he gets to do a lot with like begging for his life and it's pretty awesome dude my favorite thing he does in this entire movie it's not this scene it's the second conversation in tom's apartment where uh, uh he, he he reveals that even though he's supposed to be gone because he's supposed to be dead he's going to stick around to put the screws to tom and uh, uh tom is is giving him shit and he's like uh, uh don't give me lip it spoils it for me Right, that's when you kind of know he's totally evil. Yeah, he's so fucked in that scene where it's just like, 
I he's so sadistic. He he has been scrabbling for his own little piece of this sick pie that everyone is uh, partaking in. That once he has it, like he just relishes yeah, it. Totally. Uh, other things I just wanted to mention: uh, Casper's kid. We have like a couple scenes with this fat little boy who's Casper's son. I love those scenes. That's sort of the funny Coen's coming out to play in this one a little bit. It, it just made me think of Larry in, uh, in Lebowski. <laughs> they love smacking around fat kids, I guess. Uh, and then oh, we already started mentioning them in the scene where, where they beat up Gabriel Byrne, but Frankie and Tic Tac, the, the two Casper goons, um, Frankie's played by Mike Starr, who was also in Goodfellas. Yep. He's also the guy in Dumb and Dumber who eats too much hot sauce and dies. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who's Jim Carrey's like, you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? So Tom's burned his bridges with Leo. He's, He's on the outs, but Casper thinks he could be useful. In order to prove his loyalty to Casper, he has to give up Bernie. He wheels the location out of Verna. And then gives it to Casper, and then Casper pulls the rug out under him and tells him he has to be the one to kill Bernie. And we get another incredible scene where he takes Totoro out into the woods with Totoro begging for his life, and uh, he has to make the decision whether or not he's going to kill him. Yeah, and this is a, this is like the most famous scene of the movie. This is like the poster for the movie. It's like the poster. I mean, it's because that force looks so fucking good. Yeah, it's a good scene. And it's kind of funny that it's in this movie, though, because it really seems like sort of more of a state of grace scene, like corny crime movie has the scene where like the guy begs for his life and he's like, no, don't do it. But it's in this movie. And then and then it gets flipped on its head later on. So and it's just a great scene. Well, it's also really important because what we do know about Tom, the one thing he's told us about himself is the thing that he finds most ridiculous in the world is the metaphor of a man chasing after his hat. Yes. The idea that you would betray that you wanted something enough that other people would would know and could use that against you. So he would never beg the way Bernie begs. It gives away too much. Yeah, he just pukes when he's about to get shot. Uh, that's because he's got it so repressed. He can't express it at all that like it literally forces its way out of it. Right, right. And uh, uh, and so the contrast between him and Bernie, because they're both playing angles, but Tom thinks he's playing it by a code of ethics, by, by, by a set of rules that make him better. Mm. And in their own way, they're what, you know, undo him. They're what destroy his relationship with Leo and with Verna. But he still wins. That's all that matters, right? He won the game. <laughs> well, he beat Bernie at the very least. Yeah, he didn't die. The next chunk of the film is uh, a Tom versus the Dane. As he's working his way up Casper's organization, he starts rubbing up against the Dane, who's Casper's right-hand man. They already didn't like each other when they were on opposite sides, and now the Dane doesn't trust Tom at all. He thinks he's still working for Leo. He thinks that he didn't kill Bernie, which is true. And so we've got these sequences of the Dane investigating Tom and bringing him out into the woods to find Bernie's body. But there actually is a body there. And that's the scene where where Bern thinks he's going to get shot and he throws up. It just being a scary ass motherfucker. Low key, the Dane kind of just in like all of his assumptions about Gabriel Byrne, like 
he's totally right that he's a weasel. And he was just looking out for his boss, who Gabriel Byrne ends up killing. So, like, Dane was kind of robbed here. The Dane was right. The Dane was a good guy. <laughs> no, he's a terrible monster. But, you know, in the <laughs> confines of the criminal world, kind of a good guy. Let's be honest. Really working hard for his boss. He makes a really great foil to Tom because he is so incisive. He understands the situation nearly as well as Tom right. does. Tom's like superpower in this movie is that he can see the threads that other people can't see. Yeah. Like he understands the relationships between all the characters in a way that they don't understand. And the Dane is the only other character who gets close. I guess maybe Verna too, but she's less antagonistic for sure yeah and the dane's only fatal flaw is that he's not as aware of how tom has manipulated polito yeah he just doesn't understand tom's game he he only sees tom as trying to help leah right and not necessarily to, to strike against the dane himself the whole sequence climaxes at casper's house where dane thinks he finally has you know the the coup de gras against tom but tom turns it against him because he's been whispering you know, poison honey into Casper's ear. And Casper murders the Dane with a shovel and uh, freaks the fuck out. This movie is basically if um, if Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings was the main character. <laughs> What's the hero? <laughs> He's like, Lad, keep going against the fellowship, my lord. Um, <laughs> fuck Tom. What a piece of shit. <laughs> Tom convinces casper to go find bernie at his apartment uh but bernie gets the drop on casper and kills him and then tom kills bernie and and cleanly eliminates all of his problems uh puts leo back on top and uh wins the movie as you said only he's just burned all of the bridges with the people that he cared about in his life but maybe that's what he wanted to do the whole time because caring about things is weakness all right so let's finally have this conversation for real. What is Tom's deal? So we kind of established that you're saying like, we don't know what his deal is, but in talking to you about this movie, I'm kind of starting to think like, is Tom low key, like the most evil person in this movie? He like manipulates the shit out of everyone around him. He kills people. I mean, he at least doesn't kill Leo. That would be the one thing that he could do that would really make him terrible but like this goes back to what i was saying about gabriel Byrne at the beginning was like he's not likable and maybe it's because he's kind of evil in this movie see that's not how i read tom he i don't read him as like this sort of like kaiser soze who's like pulling all the strings and uh just like he liked his cushy spot in the seat behind the throne and he wants it back i see tom as this deeply conflicted character okay very self-destructive, who loves Leo and is incredibly loyal to him, but also has this pathological need to show no emotion and a romantic desire for Verna that he doesn't even really fully comprehend. And he cannot reconcile these different parts of himself. And they lead him down this path that causes all this death. And yeah, he manipulates Casper, but he only does it because of his loyalty to Leah. I totally see all that. I think I need to watch it again one of these days and 
take all that into consideration. But yeah, it's, it's I think this might be in the lesser tier Cohen in the popular um, opinion, just because it's it's not as fun. It's 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 a little more like tough to process. It is. It's a movie that demands your attention and doesn't make that easy. You know, there's like really important stuff happening in weird old timey slang that's being mumbled under a wailing oboe. Like you have to be paying attention. And even then, like what you get for it is something that that isn't easy. That isn't that's pretty challenging. Yeah, for sure. And also just sort of hard to even unwrap in and I know that's the same thing as challenging, but it's not just like, oh, if you focus really hard, you'll understand what's going on. And like if you eventually map out all the plots, but it's more than that. It's also just like, what is this guy even going through? Right. What does all that stuff mean? Look, that's probably as good a segue as I'm going to get. Can we talk about the hat? Yeah, I mean, it's I get what you were saying about the control or, or like not saying what you... Uh, what you truly want not, not showing, showing what you truly want weakness yeah by revealing and there is a, a cool thread about like hats and i guess masculinity because there's a lot of pretty toxic masculinity in this movie and idiot men doing violent shit for seemingly no reason or for not good enough of a reason and the hat seems to embody a lot of that and what does verna do in order to gain entrance into this male-dominated world. What's that? She wins Tom's hat in a game of poker. The movie was conceptualized with an image. Like, the, the movie started as just like an image in one of the Coen brothers' heads of the, the opening credit shot of a hat landing in a forest glade and then being picked up by the wind and sailing down a row of trees. So that is, like, where this movie begins... And from there, everything else is spawned. And I just wanted to talk about the hat and Tom's hat, because I think it is one of the best symbols, best executions of symbolism in any movie ever. Cool. Symbolism is like a really hard thing to accurately explicate. Like, I feel like, you know, you get like the eighth grade English class version of it, where it's like, it's a thing that represents something else. But the best symbols aren't one-to-one. They aren't literalizations. They are, you know, motifs, themes, splashes of color that create a sense of ideas that are bigger than the work itself, but that are open to different interpretations and they're open to different readings. And the hat in this movie is such a great example of that. Yeah. In some ways, it's like this piece of armor that Tom wears, Right? Like, he uses it to protect himself, and it's always when he loses his hat that he's about to be damaged physically or emotionally. Mm, interesting. I totally see that. I am I was sort of at the stage watching this movie where I was kind of like, what's up with these fucking hats? Like, <laughs> so <laughs> you should just go crazy with this, because I was just sort of like, fucking hats everywhere in this movie. Jeez. You also put a figure on it where it's like, it's a representation of masculinity. Because, like, the hat is specific to a man. The fedora is specifically a hat that a man wears. And it absolutely represents his sense of of manhood. And you contrast him with someone like Bernie, who doesn't wear a hat. Right. 
The effect, most of the other characters don't wear hats. The only other character we routinely see wear a hat is the Dane. Because he and Tom are, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. Doesn't Bernie wear one of those newsboy caps at one point, like when he shows up at his place in the middle of the night? He does. So he only wears the lamest possible hat at the time, the (laughs) newsboy. And here's the thing, is that Tom tells us the most ridiculous thing a man can do is chase after his hat. And yet, that is literally the first thing he does in the movie, is go try and recover his hat. What a hypocrite. There's so much fascinating shit packed into that, and yet it is never overbearing. It is perfectly baked into the narrative of the film and into the characterization of Tom, where you can just see it as like this Indiana Jones-style quirk, where he just always wants to have his hat. But there's so much more going on behind the scenes. Totally. So give us your final review, Ben. Like what, two out of five? Yeah, I mean, Gentleman's Two. No, this is a five-star film. This is an incredible work of filmmaking. I wanted to briefly highlight a review by a writer named Christopher Orr in The Atlantic because he did this incredible series where he just re-watched all of the Coen Brothers films and then wrote down like his extemporaneous thoughts about each of them. And they're funny and wonderful. Um, and the thing that he highlighted in this film is just the way that it, it distills all the tropes and themes and moods of classic gangster films into this like sort of perfect intoxicating package into this uh, cinematic chemistry, he calls it. Um, and it really is something that's incredible about the Cohen's genre work is the way that they can seemingly pull together all of these primary texts and create like an Ur text that incorporates all of them. I also just want to talk briefly about the usage of details in this movie um, it's another thing that Coens have always excelled at, and I think they're almost never better than they are in this film. Just the way a gesture or a word or a piece of clothing or the way that clothing is worn can say so much about the characters and their predicaments. Yeah, there's a lot of cool little moments here. And it kind of brings me back to like us talking about Goodfellas when... I was just blown away that we even deal with like seven seasons of prestige TV when like you could easily <laughs> do just as dense of a story, maybe with not as much detail and not as many tangents, but just like one look is a whole season sometimes in these movies in like really well done movies. One, one gesture is like an entire season of one guy pissing off another guy and ultimately killing him <laughs> instead in a movie. It's like, you just looked at me funny? I kill you. Like, you don't need fucking 13 <laughs> hours of that. Um, so I still love TV, but I do miss movies that are just so good with these little details that sell the shit out of yeah. what's going on and tell you a complete story in all of two hours. Uh, I, yeah, I give it a four out of five. I, I think there's a lot of really good stuff, and I was really excited watching it. It was the first time in a while that I was like super excited of like, where is this going to go next? And really well written. I just like didn't, I found it a little soulless at points. And I think that's sort of the point. It's like a story about a bunch of people that kind of lack souls. They're just terrible gangsters that kill each other and fucking shoot each other. And it's, it's whacked. Yeah. 
It's like the classic noir trope where it's like the point is to alienate the audience. Yeah, and I've watched some of those old movies like White Heat and watching those, I was also like, oh, Jesus, this is horrible. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know, it's I, I feel like it's kind of lacking some of the folly that makes other Cohen movies so great to me. Like No Country for Old Men, it's like the same thing. It's like a bunch of really gruff people shooting each other in the face. But it's got this fun that this movie doesn't have as much of. And there's some of it. There's it's some just of a, it. It's a weird movie to choose for that comparison because I feel like No Country is their least fun movie. What? No way. There's so many funny moments in No Country. What's in the satchel? Million dollars. That's like a huge laugh line. When when Chigurh shows up at the at the motel, when there's so many good moments. I'm just saying, like on the spectrum of Coen Brothers movies, that one has like the least humor. I'm using it as a comparison because it's so similar in terms of like what is happening. It's like people shooting each other, and violence and nihilism and all this terrible fucked up shit. But this one just didn't get me on that level and. I was wondering if maybe it's because maybe the movie isn't their most personal work. Like, is it a little bit more of an exercise in style? We talked about how influenced it is in all these other movies. And it's a really good exercise in style. Don't get me wrong. But they wrote it when they were suffering writer's block. And, like, maybe the lack of knowing who the fuck Gabriel Byrne is comes from the fact that like, maybe they didn't know who he is and it's cool. I get it, but it just doesn't like hit me the way it's hitting you. So I don't know what, what else to say other than it's a good movie. Other than that you're wrong and you're dumb and you're stupid. And the podcast is over. Well, that already <laughs> happened when you didn't put Lebowski in the top five, which honestly <laughs> really is making me question my entire relationship with you. But it's okay. Let's talk this film's legacy. Budget of somewhere between 10 and 14, 11 and 15 million dollars. The Coens say they brought it in well under the reported budget. So it's sort of hard to say where the number actually lies. Um, it opened on September 22nd. I could not find any numbers about its opening weekend because it was like a limited release in one theater and it had a slow rollout. Ultimately, it goes on to gross $5 million. Not too good. Bomb. It was crushed by Goodfellas. Of course. They release it almost exactly the same time with almost exactly the same release strategy and very similar audiences. And Goodfellas just blew it out of the water. You better think Goodfellas is better than this. I'm going to press stop on the recording right now. Uh, you're already thinking about it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press stop on the recording right now. <laughs> I I I think the power of Goodfellas is undeniable. Yes, and but I could spend a lot longer unpacking this movie. But which one. one's better? That's the key. It just depends on what you want to get out of a movie. If you want to like, you know, go all like a, you know, textual analysis and like, you know, go line by line of dialogue and 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 examine every single one, I you could make an argument that this film was better. Okay. We'll leave it at that. So it's kind of crazy. So many crime movies that we've covered in this year of 1990. It's like the year for crime. We talked about it a while ago, but like 
I think it is the best year for crime movies of all time. I don't think there's a better year. There's so much variety. We've had this. We've had Goodfellas. We've had Dick Tracy, Blue Steel. We've had Miami Blues. We've we've been all over the place. We had the crime triple feature. Yeah, we had three other movies that were all original crime movies. And we've still got Godfather 3, which is a crime movie. And maybe it'll be like, it'll kind of be like the great downfall of 1990. And we've got the greatest crime film of all time featuring the most uh, competent and uh, frightening criminals of any film ever, The Wet Bandits and Home Alone. Oh, true, true. That's coming up. So yeah, I just, I know we've talked about crime so much, but shout out to 1990. I think it is the greatest crime year of all time. I don't I don't think there's anything that comes close to the variety. I just mean in terms maybe it's not the best crime movies ever, but I think it actually is. But just like Goodfellas for like quantity. Quantity and like quality combined. But let's talk some other 90s themes. All right, I have a couple of new ones and a couple of old ones I want to talk about. First one, I was thinking about how strong the authorial voice of the Coens is in this and Scorsese is in Goodfellas and even things like uh, Mo Better Blues with Spike Lee and Blue Steel with Catherine Bigelow and Metropolitan with Whit Stillman. And I feel like that was a big selling point in the 90s. Um, And it was sort of maybe like a push, a pendulum swing back. You know, that was really big in the 70s, but then maybe sort of moves away in the 80s when, when things get a little bit more cookie cutter and factory line. And then in the nineties, it starts to push back the other way as a new generation of filmmakers finds their voice. And as we see a rise of independent films um, where we sort of recapture the director as auteur and the importance of having a distinct voice as a director, as opposed to like being able to have like a fungible style that you could apply to lots of different kinds of films or, uh, um, you know, being realistic, you know, it's like style over substance to some degree. Yeah. And that gets really big with all the indie directors that come up in the nineties too. So that's, this is definitely like a revealing of what's to come. Cause you know, you're going to have Tarantino in a few years. You're going to have even like Kevin Smith and Paul Thomas Anderson. Like it's, it's going to be like the bad boy. Steven Soderbergh's just starting to break in. So I totally see that. All right. Number two. Separate from crime, though obviously related, I want to talk about violence. Mm. The depictions of violence in some of the best films that we've watched have been really interesting. They feel really like boundary pushing. We talked about it briefly in Goodfellas, like how shocking and frightening the violence is in that movie. And in this one, you know, this is a really, really violent movie. One of the most violent movies the Coen brothers have ever made. And they've never really shied away from violence. Yeah. They've killed a lot of people over the years. And I was thinking about, like, again, I know I keep mentioning it, but Blue Steel. An entire movie about, like, the effects of violence and, like, the appeal of violence. And I think, you know, I think norms were starting to change. The uh, standards were loosening a little bit. Directors could get away with more violence. I mean, it's going to culminate basically in Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, which is a film that was thought to be excessively violent at the time, although today it looks pretty yeah. tame. And and so they're really 
you've got all these excellent directors pushing those boundaries and making films about violence, trying to correct the way violence had been depicted, which it was that sort of sanitized PG-13 violence that you see in, you know, things like, like Die Hard or something like that. I think that the 80s had its own specific brand of violence. And maybe this is it maturing a little bit because I think there's a lot of violent movies. I think that really kicks off with like Bonnie and Clyde and like um, the wild bunch, like in the, in the late sixties when it's like, Oh, we can finally actually show people getting blown away. And like, you know, then you have like straw dogs and like, you're seeing a lot of violence over the years, but maybe we're finally getting to a place where like, it's, more i don't know artistic in a way like i feel like in uh straw dogs and wild bunch it's just like look at this crazy shit and then everyone copies that for like slasher movies and for action movies and you know maybe this is kind of a reclamation of artistic violence well what i find so interesting about the violence in the films that we've been watching is it feels like each movie has a different take on it totally right like Total Recall, Blue Steel, Goodfellas, Miller's Crossing, all are very violent movies that all have a very different attitude towards violence and way of depicting it and a way of forcing the audience to reckon with it. And I gotta say, this one is one of the most hardcore that we've watched. This is a brutal movie. People get executed. I mentioned that one scene where the Dane executes the guy. There's that guy who gets gunned down at the bar the guy who gets uh he p- brings out a white flag and then they shoot him and then those guys get shot then Sam Raimi gets shot it's it's violent man it is harsh during the Danny Boy sequence the one guy just gets machine gun for 30 full seconds by a Tommy gun yeah it's it's pretty bad so that's a good one what else we got all right Two returning ones. We haven't mentioned this in a while, but I wanted to bring back up racism. Mm. This film has, you know, a, a, a thin veneer of like racial tension and prejudice between the Italians and the Irish and then between the Italians and Irish together against the Jewish people. And that has been sort of the case in a lot of these movies where it's not really like racism is a major theme, but it's part of the tapestry of the film. Yeah. Which is a, 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 a far cry from the sort of whitewashed movies of generations before where they didn't even like mention racism as existing. So this is like sort of a necessary step as part of this burgeoning cultural reappraisal of race where it's present, even if it's not particularly nuanced. Uh, lastly, I wanted to talk about passivity and the passive main characters. Tom definitely fits this bill. You know, he, he he is a little bit more active because he does a lot of sort of active manipulation of other characters. But like many hard-boiled heroes, he mostly just keeps rolling with the punches until he gets yeah, a until chance he absolutely to get has out to of do it. Something. I will say he's not as passive as most of the characters we've seen that we've been talking about. But he fits, he fits the mold, but like adjacent. Because he does pull some crazy shit in this movie. He chooses not to kill Chaturo. He kills Chaturo. Exactly. He chooses not to do something with Chaturo. He gets other people to kill Casper and to kill the Dane. Yeah, I suppose. But he's still doing something by doing that. He's not just letting shit. It's not like Henry Hill where like he's not doing anything other than the one thing he does at the end of the movie, right. which is rat on everybody. Like. He's by not killing people, he's still killing people. You know what I mean? It's still a far cry from something like, you know, 
just to look at other noir films like Double Indemnity. Yeah, that's... Where the whole thing begins because somebody makes an active choice to commit a crime. For sure, for sure. Tom's whole thing is like, he tells other people what to do, and if they don't do it, well, fuck him. But he also games it in a way that he can come out on top, for sure. He does, he does. I got one, which is one we've talked about a lot, which is looking back on the prior century. I think that this one, obviously it's just looking back on like one moment in time. It's looking back on like prohibition. Um, And it's giving you some cultural examination of the whole prohibition thing. But also, I think that the Coen's career as a whole, which probably gets cemented with this movie and Barton Fink, has really been all about that looking back on the century prior all of their movies or most of their movies take place somewhere in the 20th century um in the past be it the distant past or the really recent past and i i think that they're kind of obsessed with exploring all these different eras of american identity all these different geographic parts of america they've kind of gone all over the map and all over the timeline between like 1865 and now. So I think that they're kind of the poster boys for, for what we've been talking about in this like reflection on the previous century, but throughout their whole career. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, that was Miller's crossing. Good movie, solid flick, or maybe masterpiece kind of remains to be decided, but we had two different takes, but I still really liked it. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear our listeners' opinions on it. How could they tell us, though? <laughs> they could tweet at us or visit us on Instagram at BTTMPod. That's BTTM, like, back to the movies. But what if they wanted to, like, write you, like, a 30-paragraph essay about the hat symbolism? They could email it to us at BTTMPod at gmail.com. I can't believe it. So, Ben, what's our next movie? Our next movie is To Sleep With Anger. Oh, okay. We're going back to the Criterion circuit. We've had a lot of fun with these fan favorite directors, but now we've got to go back to the lesser known Criterion releases. So, can't wait for To Sleep With Anger. Thank you to Andy Gagnon for our music. And Jackie Saltzman for our brand new logo that we love so much. We've got a powerhouse of material now. We've got the, the theme song. we got the logo. We're on the ups. Oh, and, and also, if you want more Back to the Movies content, follow us on Letterboxd as well. We're writing reviews. We are... We got lists that we make. Like, check us out. I think I'm just Nat McGee, if you just search me. And I think Ben is just Ben Hain. I'm Hain 101. So check us out there, too, because we are we are active. Um, Good so. call. Great. Well, for Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. This is Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Bye-bye. Don't give me the hi-hat. It's about ethics. Yeah, he's just so cuddly. He's like a teddy bear. A teddy bear who beats a man to death. Bears do tend to maul. They're still very cute. (laughs) 